Uh, we'll hear argument now in number 85173, uh, Brian Dagan v. United States. Is that the correct pronunciation of your client's name, Mr. Evans? Mr. Deegan. Deegan. Very well. Proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. On October 24, 1989, federal prosecutors in Reno, Nevada, commenced a civil forfeiture action against some $5.5 million in real and personal property owned by petitioner Brian Deegan and his wife, Karen. As the forfeiture statutes permit, Mr. Deegan filed a claim to the property. In it, he denied that the property was either the proceeds or instrumentalities of narcotics violations. He also asserted a range of legal defenses, including that the forfeiture action was time-barred and that it rested on an ex post facto application of the forfeiture laws. On the government's motion, however, the district court struck Mr. Deegan's claim for the property. The court ruled that because Mr. Deegan, a dual Swiss and American citizen, had not traveled to the United States to stand trial in a criminal case that had been brought against him, he was a fugitive. And as a fugitive from the criminal case, he was therefore disentitled, in the vernacular, from contesting the civil forfeiture of his property. The district court therefore entered a judgment against Mr. Deegan for the full amount of the government's claim, some $5.5 million of property, and the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirmed. Our central submission this morning is that federal courts and federal judges do not have the authority to do this. To the contrary, this extraordinary application of the Fugitive Disentitlement Doctrine cannot be squared with this Court's disentitlement cases, it cannot be squared with due process, and it cannot be squared, most importantly, with the limitations that this Court has always recognized on the scope of the inherent powers of the federal courts. When you say it cannot be squared with due process, Mr. Robbins, do you mean that if Congress had enacted such a provision, it would be unconstitutional? I believe it would. I believe that Congress would not have the authority to pass a statute that has done what the federal courts in this case have done, although, uh, Justice Scalia, if I might add, uh, it is all the more unlawful when done by federal courts. What leads you to think that Congress wouldn't have that authority? Well, I, I, think, I think the reason is I mean, Are you talking about a case? I'm sorry? You're, are you talking about a decision of this court that supports that proposition? Well, I, it's, I think that the, the, the line of authority that supports the proposition is embodied, for example, in McVeigh and in Hovey against Elliott, where the court, in deciding that a court lacked the power, said that not even a legislature could pass such a statute, and therefore it's all the more unconstitutional for federal courts, or in those cases uh, state courts, to exercise that kind of authority. Uh, so where, where did your client reside before he went to Switzerland? He lived in the United States. And wh when did he go to Switzerland? Uh, the record suggests, Mr. Chief Justice, that he went to Switzerland sometime in early 1988. And when was the indictment handed down? Uh, it was unsealed in October 1989. Uh, if supposing the district judge in this case had made a finding that he left the United States in order to avoid pleading to the indictment, would that make the outcome any different in your view? It would not. Uh, our position would be that even if he were a fugitive in that sense, uh, which he is not, but even had he been, our position would be exactly the same. That is to say that a federal court in the civil forfeiture case would not have the authority to exercise the dispositive sanction of dismissal. And that Congress wouldn't? Uh, I, think it would be, I think it would be very difficult to say that Congress could pass a statute that says that, the, that, the, that you have no right to defend the forfeiture of property if you, have, if you have become a fugitive in a criminal case. 
But again, and, uh, and that's so even if you make a general appearance in the action. A general appearance in the forfeiture action. Yes. Uh, and the question would, would again be the power uh, again, of Congress. Uh, uh, the powers of Congress under the Due Process Clause. Uh, assume that there is a general appearance in the action, but a refusal to make discovery or a refusal to appear. Uh, couldn't the, uh, because you're uh, a fugitive from justice. Couldn't the Congress of the United States say, in that case, we can take judgment against you? Well, again, if again, my, my general answer is that when Congress does something, obviously they are not constrained by the, the limitations on inherent powers. The question that would be presented, Justice Kennedy, in that situation is whether the application of that sanction through the legislative process satisfies the conditions uh, articulated in Hammond Packing on whether there's a sufficient nexus between the violation and the, the, uh, the sanction that's been imposed. And Mr. It might Robbins, be. I thought you were not contesting that as far as the forfeiture is concerned, Mr. Deacon would have to be treated like any other litigant. So if he didn't show up, say, for a deposition, didn't comply with all the discovery requirements, out he goes. I thought that you were saying as far as the forfeiture proceeding is concern, he can't have any advantage because of his fugitive status. And if I'm wrong in that, uh, please tell me. Well, we are certainly not suggesting, Justice Ginsburg, that he has some special advantage by, being, by virtue of his non-appearance. And so, for example, if there were an appropriate sanction for non-appearance in the forfeiture action, uh, I suppose that if that sanction otherwise comported with the, the, st the two standards that this court articulated in the Insurance Corporation of Ireland, uh, I suppose he could be appropriately sanctioned. And I, thought, I thought your case was he, he has a right, the right that any litigant would have, to defend the forfeiture proceeding. Exactly. He's not stripped of that right because there's a criminal prosecution against him. Exactly. But as to the forfeiture proceeding, he would have to comply with all the requirements that the court would impose on anyone who is contesting a forfeiture. That, that's absolutely correct. And the only point of departure that I thought I, I tried to suggest to Your Honor's question is insofar as the predicate is that if he didn't show up for a deposition, he would be automatically subject to, to have his claim dismissed. I'm not altogether sure that courts can dismiss claims whenever there's any particular uh, violation of a discovery order. The question would always... Civil matter, though. You wouldn't exactly. Uh, you know, the question would be, you know, whether this comports with the due process restrictions on Rule 37, as this Court has articulated them in... in, in what, what, assuming even apart from any rule, that uh, the failure to show up, in effect, made it impossible for the government uh, to perfect its forfeiture case, perhaps because the, uh, the material forfeited was in the possession of the defendant? Uh, in a case like that, rule or no rule, I take it you would agree that uh, there would be no due process violation in disentitling the person to defend any further? I think I think that's I think that's correct. If I understand the question, uh, if, for example, his non-appearance rendered it impossible for the district court in the forfeiture action to proceed, uh, for example, by uh, uh, rendering it impossible to have jurisdiction, you know, to enforce the judgment or to take control of the race, if you will, uh, uh, then you know there's there's nothing that should separate Mr. Deegan from any other litigant. If the that, if the district court were to order him to appear in, in Nevada for, for a deposition, uh, could he then be uh, served with criminal process in the criminal case? Oh, I, I, I think if he were to appear in response to such an order, 
Um, I have no doubt that he would be immediately served with process in the criminal case. And would, would, would that be constitutionally objectionable in your view? Well, the, 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 it would raise a question in my mind, Mr. Chief Justice, if it was done for the purpose of securing his appearance as a way of sort of going around the expedition. Well, so suppose it wasn't. Suppose the district judge says, we do have these foreign claimants, and I always require them to come to Reno and or Las Vegas and give, give their deposition. Well, Your Honor, that, I think the answer is this. Uh, if we were faced with that case, which of course we're not, he was not sanctioned for that reason, he was sanctioned for the quite different reason that he didn't come and make an appearance in his criminal case. But had he been sanctioned for that, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I think it would raise two questions. One about the formulation of the rule, and one about the formulation of the sanction. Formulation of the rule would be, can a district judge say that in all civil forfeiture actions, every claimant must show up in person? I think that would raise a question, which I'm not prepared to sort of give a, a, a complete answer to, but I, I think it would raise a question as to whether a district court would be, in effect, um, um, uh, announcing that the rules provided by Congress, including for foreign depositions and telephonic depositions, shall be just set aside and that no discretion shall be exercised. We've said that that's okay in civil, in civil matters where where the reason the person doesn't want to appear uh, generally is, is that he will, uh, he will be served in other civil cases. We've said it's per perfectly okay for a state to say you make a general appearance or you do not appear at all. I, think I would think that it's a lot easier to say it for the criminal case. The interest of the state is much greater. I, I, well, again, I think, I think the interest of the state is greater, but the question that I, that I was intending to answer is whether a court could say that notwithstanding Rules 28 uh, B on uh, foreign depositions and Rule 30B7 on telephonic depositions, I'm just not, the judge would be saying, in all civil forfeiture actions, I'm not going to well, consider so those. Supposing the district court said, I don't require all civil forfeiture defendants to come to Las Vegas, but I'm going to require you to come to Las Vegas because I'm exercising my discretion and that's the way I choose to exercise it. I think it is possible uh, that if, if, if circumstances warranted that and the, the judge you know, gave reasons that satisfy a reviewing court that, that this was appropriate exercise of discretion. It might be done. But then there would be the further question, if I might, as to whether the violation of that order gives, uh, justifies the sanction, the dispositive sanction of dismissal. You sound as though your client might be planning to violate such an order. Uh, no. Uh, uh, I, uh, and, and the question, of course, has not been presented since he's, he's obeyed every order in, that, in, the, in the civil case that's been pressed on him. And this district judge, unlike the hypothetical district judge that the question presupposes, has ordered foreign depositions in the case of Karen Deegan, my client's okay. wife. In, in your, I take it, for pure purposes, we could consider this as a case in which the defendant is happy to send his lawyers. He's happy to comply with every order. What he'd like to do is send in one piece of paper, which piece of paper would be absolutely conclusive in his, fa in his favor. And the judge says, I'm sorry, I won't look at the paper. Since you're not here, you lose, period. Since, is that right? Since you're, and actually it's more than that, Justice Breyer, since you are not here in this other case. Yes, since you're not here in the other case, you lose. Now, we're used to doing that in an appeal where, after sentencing, for example, the defendant runs away. And you concede we can do that there. No that question. We won't look at your paper. We won't look at the brief. You lose. 
Yes, but that... All right. Now, what line do you draw? Well, I, I draw exactly the line that this court has drawn in that exact in those very cases. Uh, the line, uh, and it, it cuts across several factors that distinguish the facts of this case from that line of cases. In the first place, uh, uh, Justice Breyer, those are cases in which there is no underlying constitutional right that's been abrogated. There is no. I mean, when I say what line are you drawing? After all, there are a lot of intermediate cases. He runs away before sentencing. Can the judge then sentence him? Uh, I, b- I believe that the answer to that is yes. That's exactly. If in what fact. The judge wants to levy a fine, and he wants to produce one piece of paper, which will show he has no money. Does the judge have to look at that piece of paper? Well, again, these are cases in which the sanction is being imposed in the very proceeding in which the person... Well, I'm asking you for your... I mean, you're absolutely right. That's where I'm driving. What I want to see is what's your line. You agree, I take it, the judge doesn't have to look at the piece of paper when he ran away before appeal. The judge doesn't have to look at the piece of paper when he runs away before he's being fined at sentencing. But you're saying the judge does have to look at the piece of paper when it's a forfeiture of property. And, and what's the distinction? Well, one distinction is, uh, is, is that it doesn't turn so much on the forfeiture of property as it does on the fact that there are two different proceedings. And in the forfeiture proceeding, there is no showing uh, that the fugitivity has any impact, has had any impact, on the process of the forfeiture court, which is, of course, exactly the distinction that persuaded this court in Ortega-Rodriguez to draw the line where it did. Uh, We are insisting on exactly the same line. And indeed, the use of the disentitlement doctrine in this setting, in my view, is vastly more dramatic. Mr. Robbins, may I I ask you a question? You may recall that there are some lawyers who argue that the double jeopardy clause requires the two proceedings to be brought as one. I've heard such an argument. You've heard such an argument. Well, well, if the Constitution commands that these uh, proceedings be treated as one, how can you consistently argue in this case that we must treat them as totally separate? Well, which, uh, you, which is the heart of your argument, that we should ignore the criminal case and just look at what can be done in the civil case. Well, I, I, I contend that they are separate proceedings, of course. And it's constitutionally permissible for us to treat them as separate proceedings. Uh, well, uh, I think it is constitutionally permissible to treat them as separate proceedings, and indeed they are separate proceedings. Uh, but even even if not, you, you would say that if they are brought as separate proceedings, they have to be treated as separate proceedings. Exactly, That's a very irrational position. Isn't and it? the the, yeah. the inquiry would and the inquiry would still be: Has the fugitivity in case one affected the proceedings in case two? Uh, and my general answer is that if, if the answer is no, it doesn't meet Ortega-Rodriguez. It is nothing like any disentitlement case this court has ever approved. It serves none of the purposes, none of the purposes that this court identified in Ortega-Rodriguez. What the government wants in order to sustain this forfeiture is for the court to completely reformulate the doctrine of fugitive disentitlement so that it no longer matters whether the the claimant has a dispositive motion that doesn't even require his presence uh, or even his testimony, so that it doesn't even matter if the government has probable cause, so that it doesn't even matter whether there's venue in this court, so that the only thing that matters is that he hasn't shown up to face parallel criminal charges. Mr. Robbins, in answer to Justice Scalia's question about the special and general appearance, uh, you indicated that that was right, that a state could say, either you stay out, and forfeit whatever we have, or you come in for all purposes. But my understanding is that on the federal side, if the property is in the custody of the court, 
you could make a limited appearance and say, I'm coming in for purposes of defending my property, but nothing else that I own is going to be subject to the court's authority. I thought that's, on the federal side, that has been the federal practice, whatever the Texas rule may be. Well, I'm actually not certain whether Mr. Deegan could have entered a limited appearance. Uh, In this particular case, he hired a lawyer to contest the forfeiture. So that's what a limited appearance is. I'm there, I'm fighting out the case, but the only thing that's going to be subject to the judgment is the property. Correct. Which is, of course, the only thing that can be subject to the forfeiture to the forfeiture judgment. The forfeiture court is not seized of jurisdiction over Mr. Deegan for purposes of imposing, you know, a dispositive sanction on him other than in the course of a litigation were he to violate a court order. And I guess the actual parallel in the state civil case anyway would not be whether you subject yourself to, to general counterclaims and whatnot but, but that are relevant to that suit. But rather, I guess the parallel would be a state that says if, if you make a, even a special appearance in one case you are liable to being sued uh, in separate cases by, and I don't know any state that does that. Well, uh, exactly, and actually, this is actually, uh, to me, a more dramatic uh, example of that for the following reason. Mr. Deegan has been sanctioned, indeed dispositively sanctioned, not because of something he did in the criminal case, but for his failure to come to the United States, an act over which the court in the criminal case lacks jurisdiction. In a sense, this is the use of an inherent power to sanction someone in case one because of something that he failed to do outside the courtroom in case two. And I'd like to suggest with all respect that there is no authority, in, certainly in any of this court's cases, for this kind of a use of an inherent power of a court. Could the judge uh, decline to give uh, the usual weight and credit to the sworn affidavit because of the defendant's absence? He said, I have this paper in front of me, but... Number one, this man's a fugitive. Uh, I'm going to discount this. You know, I, I think the answer, Justice Kennedy, is that there is that uh, it's possible the court could do that, uh, saying, look, I didn't get to test his demeanor. It's not only possible, is it permissible? <laughs> I, I think it is permissible. Um, uh, and after all, uh, it's important to bear in mind, Mr. Deegan bears the burden of proof. His not showing up has consequences for him, too. Just as this court pointed out in Society International, There are consequences for the litigant that doesn't appear, but one of them is not that you dispositively sanction him, take his property, give him no day in court for the reason that in a separate case over which which the judge has no jurisdiction in the first place, he hasn't shown up. Maybe maybe it isn't that separate a case. I mean, certainly that's what the government is going to argue. These cases would be quite different if it were a totally unrelated piece of civil litigation that you're talking about. But this is, in fact, uh, simply... uh, a piece of uh, uh, civil litigation that has a lot to do with the criminal case. Well, they are. Can't we consider them uh, effectively joined? I don't think so. And any more than the court was inclined to consider the two stages of Ortega Rodriguez the same case. There, after all, you had a, a prosecution followed by an appeal. And yet the court concluded that because there was no impact on the appellate proceedings of the same exact case, you couldn't apply the disentitlement doctrine in that way. Well, but that, that had to do with the fact that the appellate proceedings did not relate to the same court, that they didn't, uh, didn't have to do with an offense to the dignity of the same court, and therefore couldn't be within the inherent powers of that court. But well, here it is the same court. Well, it, it, it is the same court, but it's the same court with respect to a different case, and the inquiry, I thought, in Ortega-Rodriguez is whether the appellate process 
That was certainly one of the, one of the factors. Has the appellate process uh, uh, been uh, uh, disturbed? Or, or, and because it was only the appellate process that was the business of that court. I understand. But I think it had to do with the identity of courts rather than the, the absolute identity of lawsuits. I understand. But I think it remains the case that federal courts, uh, even if it happens to be the same judge, uh, I do not un- understand any of this court's cases to permit the sanctioning of a litigant who happens to be before the same judge in another case, even if it's related cases. Uh, they have some facts in common. Uh, uh, nevertheless, what uh, I understand no authority, and I'm aware of no authority, the government cites no authority for the proposition that the judge, no matter how similar the underlying cause of action may be, that a sanction can be imposed in case one because of case two, particularly, let me add, for conduct that is not unlawful in any way. It bears mention that although Mr. Deegan's failure to come to the United States is doubtless frustrating to the United States Attorney in Reno, Nevada, to the Department of Justice, and to Judge Reed sitting in Reno, Nevada, neither of the political branches, neither Congress nor the executive branch, have chosen to proscribe it in any way. It doesn't, it isn't extraditable, it isn't punishable, it's not against the law, it violates no positive law, and yet there is a district judge in Reno, Nevada, who following circuit court precedent, and I must say precedent in various other circuits as well, has dispositively sanctioned someone, taking all his property without giving him his day in court. Well, that strikes me as quite extraordinary. Do, do those who are assisting him in remaining abroad, couldn't they be liable for har- harboring a fugitive? Uh, I, 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 uh, forget I, the extraterritoriality uh, territoriality aspect of it. Uh, uh, so far as the foreign, suppose he were in New York State and he was being hidden out. Well, I, I, I think if there were questions of concealment and harboring, uh, if that were true, um, uh, there might be uh, criminal sanctions attached to the persons doing it. But Justice Kennedy, it must be said, Mr. Deegan is so far from being harbored that it was not difficult for the United States government to prevail upon the Swiss to arrest him and toss him in jail, uh, where he where he lingered for nearly two years. But is uh, that the case now? What, what is the status? He is on, on that part of it. Is, it. is there a dispute with the government over what happened? Is it the case that he could not come to this proceeding because at the request of the United States, the Swiss had arrested him, tried him, and put him in prison? I'm I am dealing with a case of a person who could not show up because he was in prison because the Swiss authorities acted on American request or not? Or what is the status? The, the status is that he is out on bail. Uh, I have no reason to challenge the proposition that he could come here uh, without uh, a, a penalty from the Swiss, but I don't know that to be the case. Uh, but I'm not asserting the opposite either. And he my argument been, would He hasn't been tried yet in Switzerland. No, he's not. Uh, he's still awaiting trial on charges that on, the, on their face embody the, the allegations uh, of the American indictment as well. Mr. Robbins, uh, did the petitioner raise in district court the claim that the Swiss arrest ended his fugitive status? Uh, well, the, the Swiss arrest came in, I believe, November of 1992. He had already been disentitled at that. So it was not raised in the district court because it hadn't occurred. That's correct. It had not, it had not yet occurred. Um, uh, uh, with the court's permission, if there are no questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Robbins. Uh, Mr. Estrada, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. 
it is undisputed that this civil forfeiture action is directly related to a criminal case that is pending in the same district courthouse against Deegan, and that Deegan refused to appear to stand trial on the criminal charges. For two reasons, the Court of Appeals correctly held that a claimant in Deegan's situation may be disentitled from contesting the civil forfeiture action. First and foremost, a civil claimant's participation in the civil forfeiture actions fundamentally threatens the integrity of the criminal case. Second, the claimant... You know, the, the defendant's participation in the civil forfeiture threatens the criminal case? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, and that is, in fact, our principal argument here. Uh, our argument uh, starts from the premise that courts always have had the inherent authority to protect against the abuse of their processes by a litigant. And that is precisely what the rule at issue here does. Uh, if a civil claimant is allowed to participate in a civil forfeiture action, while at the same time he refuses to stand trial on a criminal case that is based on the identical events, he may then use the very broad civil discovery rules that to circumvent the very well-settled and strict restrictions on criminal discovery. But could that be dealt with by uh, a judge administering the civil uh, discovery rules? That is not true, Mr. Chief Justice, with respect. And in order to understand why, it is useful to note why it is that we have limited criminal discovery in our society. Those rules limiting strictly criminal discovery exist because long experience has taught Congress and the courts that early disclosure of the government's case in a criminal prosecution often leads to contrived defense testimony. But Mr. Serrata, wouldn't that be possible, even if he appeared in the criminal case, that he could use civil discovery in the forfeiture case to find out the same information? That is not so, Mr. Justice Stevens, for the following reason. Congress has recognized precisely the danger that we're pointing to in this case, and in Section, 20, in Section 80, 881I of Title 21 has given the government the right to go to the district court and get a stay of the civil forfeiture action pending the conclusion of the criminal case. Why couldn't they have done that in this case? Well, I take it uh, that, that if we had done that in this case, Mr. Justice Stevens, the net result would have been that we couldn't get any judgment in the civil forfeiture action because the criminal case can't start uh, while Mr. Deegan is in Switzerland. So it so boils down to a question of money. It's not the dignity of the court. You want the money. Well, no. We want our statutory rights under the forfeiture statutes. Which is uh, to get the money. Which is to get the money without having to compromise the integrity of the criminal process. Uh, and since we are not at fault for the fact that he is in Switzerland, uh, we think that it is a reasonable exercise of the court's authority to have a very simple procedural rule in the civil case that says that if you want to file a claim in the civil case, you should come and face related criminal charges. How long can the, how, lo how long can the uh, criminal indictment stand without dismissal if he fails to appear in response? For as long as he lives, Mr. Justice O'Connor. All right. And Honor. presumably, the government could stay the civil forfeiture and put a hold, in effect, on any transfer of title to the property. 
the property will be secure, so what has the government lost? Well, the government has lost its right to the property under the forfeiture laws. We have made a prima facie showing which, uh, on its face, entitles us to the property outright. But, uh, but it seems to me that the, it, it isn't as though the Congress has not addressed this problem. It has, and it has given you a remedy. The remedy is to stay the... Uh, is, is to stay the, uh, the civil action until the criminal action is completed. You say that remedy is inadequate. Well, maybe go back to Congress and get, a, get an additional remedy for this kind of a case. There are two points in answer to that question, Justice Scalia. Congress has not addressed the problem that we're facing with, that we are faced with here. It has not dealt with how to deal with someone who is a fugitive in a foreign country, uh, so that there is no negative implication that that is an exclusive remedy. The second point, which I think is more important, is that the fact that Congress has dealt with an aspect of the issues that come up with cases when cases are related does not mean that the court ceases to have a very strong interest in keeping parties from abusing its processes. And well, that's what is no at issue here. There's no finding here, Mr. Estrada, that the petitioner is a fugitive. Well, yes, there is, Mr. Chief Justice. We have uh, at page 18A of the petitioner's appendix, there is a finding by the district judge uh, that he is a fugitive. And uh, at page 5A... Well, whereabouts on page, uh, page... You're talking about the white... Uh... Yes, it's, uh, it's page 18A, and it is the last full paragraph. Uh, it says, uh, the, the Ninth Circuit has given us the following definition of who's a fugitive, and the court goes on to say, in this case, Brian knows he's wanted by the police, uh, but refuses to submit to arrest, even though he professes his innocence. Thus, we conclude that Brian Deegan is a fugitive. In that sense of the word, I take right. it. Right. In that sense of the word. And that, that is the sense of the word that is relevant to the application of the sanction at issue here. I think it bears emphasis from our, from our point of view that we're not here supporting the notion that the sanction being imposed is an exercise of the power of the court in the criminal case. Uh, we are not saying, for example, that he has a legal duty that is enforceable in the criminal case if the case were standing alone. What we are saying is that it is a proper use of the court's authority to manage the civil case to guard against the possibility that he will use the processes in the civil case to undermine public policies that have been reflected in the discovery of does, why not handle it at that stage instead of saying, you, you, you're, you're a total default. We are predicting what's going to happen if we were to allow you to come in and defend. And, Mr. Estrada, one striking difference between this and Malinaro, where the fugitive entitlement doctrine started, there... The defendant is away, and he says, "Aha! Uh -huh, if I'm vindicated on appeal, I'll come home, but if they're going to affirm my conviction... So there was no way to enforce the court's judgment. Here, all the property is arrested. It's in the court's control. Well, so he can't get his hands at any of that property. There are two different points being raised by your, by your question, as I understand it, uh, Justice Ginsburg. One is, why can't we wait? And the other one is, we have control over the property, so there is no question as to the enforceability of the judgment. Okay. Let me take the first one first, which is that, and in answering that one, it is important to recognize that we are claiming two distinct interests in, in the civil forfeiture action for 
supporting this rule. One, of course, uh, is the fact that, that he has shown to the court that he intends to play games with the court. And maybe their, their answer is, let's wait and see if he does it some more. But even, even, even accepting that that would be an acceptable answer, it is not an acceptable answer to the, more, to the more fundamental problem that we are identifying, which is that by getting discovery and, allowing, and being allowed to litigate the civil forfeiture action, he is circumventing the criminal discovery rules. Those rules reflect a very strong public policy that cannot be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. But Mr. Estrada, yes. suppose the defendant says, I don't want to face a total forfeiture, and I realize this argument you're making. I would rather have some defense than none. So if the district court wants to issue any kind of protective orders so that I won't get premature or prevision of the criminal case, so be it. But at least give me some chance to defend. The government, in order to affect its interest in not having more disclosure than in the criminal case, doesn't have to say you can't come in at all. It can say... I don't... Yeah. I mean, let me make two points in response to that question. Uh, the... The first one is that I think that it is not right because it is possible that he could say that all he intends to do in the action is to call the following six witnesses who will testify that, in fact, all of the property came from an inheritance or from, or, or from some other source of income. Uh, and we may well know that that is not true because all of our evidence in the criminal case shows where the, the property comes from. So all that is doing is pushing the problem one step further because he will then put us to the choice either of compromising the, the uh, criminal case I or... There are no circumstances in which he could defend that would not involve disclosing the government's case. No, I am not saying that. What I am saying is that there are enough circumstances in the class of cases to warrant the adoption of a general rule while recognizing that the rule can have exceptions for specific cases being in its, in its nature discretionary. But why, of, why in the example that you just gave does that example support you? Why in the case in which the government knows because of its criminal evidence that the property came from some other source from, than, than inheritance, couldn't the government simply go to the court and say, we have evidence to rebut. We will make a good faith offer of proof without disclosing the evidence itself. And, and therefore, you in effect ought to stay the proceeding so that we don't have to disclose our case. Uh, I suppose your answer is, well, we want the money. Uh, but, and we have a legal right to it. But the, the fact is, in, in each instance, what it comes down to is not your, not your incapacity to defend uh, your own position and not your incapacity, uh, in effect, to meet the evidentiary position that, that you feel is unfairly being foisted upon you, but rather it comes down in every instance to the fact that, that you, you want the property now rather than the property uh, at some later time when the two proceedings uh, could, could be dealt with in an orderly fashion. So it's, it seems to me that it all boils down to, to kind of a time-money uh, argument. Well, it boils down to the fact that under the acts of Congress that we have at issue here, we have a right to the money and that there is no foreseeable time in the future at which the two proceedings can be dealt with in an orderly fashion. You, well, don't, you don't hold the same in respect to misrepresentation cases, restitution cases, fraud cases, uh, dozens of other cases in which the government might have civil remedies. Uh, I'm going to say all those also are forfeited, are you? What we would say is that courts would have authority to frame rules that would keep 
the public interest from being harmed as a result of an early... And the same then here. And well, the same then here. Well, that's right, and this is such a rule, and that's our point. But isn't well, there a difference between a rule that says you can't present, have certain discovery, present certain defenses, that's what people are asking you, and a rule that says you can't come into court at all, you can't present any claim, well, defense, anything. The rule that was used by the district court in this case, Justice Breyer, is a rule saying if you want to defend the civil forfeiture action, you have first to face the criminal charges. And the district court was quite clear, and if I could point the, uh, the court to uh, uh, the top of page 26A of the PET app, the uh, court made it quite clear that he would be free to defend the civil forfeiture action to his heart's content if he would only appear in the criminal case. Uh, and. Well, isn't one of the government's possible losses, if the petitioner suggested, uh, the same thing that a statute of limitations would provide? Witnesses' recollections get stale. That's the right. The thing is brought to trial eight years from now. The government may have had a good case now, but the witnesses may not be around. They may have died in the meantime. And that is true, both in the criminal case and in the civil case. And I think it leads me to a further point that I wanted to make in response to, to Justice Souter, uh, which is that... We can readily concede for purposes of this case that there is no legally enforceable duty to show up in the criminal case that flows from the criminal case itself. That does not mean that his failure to show up in the criminal case has a positive value to our society that we should strive to accommodate in framing rules for the orderly conduct of the civil litigation. Well, if he has no obligation to show up, I suppose the societal value is, is, uh, is even Stephen. It's, it's neither positive nor negative. Well, that is not so, because we have a duly returned indictment, uh, and we have... And a why don't we have a set of rules that, that obligates him to show up? You just conceded that he wasn't obligated to show up. No, I said that it is not significant for our case in this in this case, to show that he has a legal duty that flows from the criminal case. But what is at issue here is whether the court, in the orderly process of the civil case, may have a rule to protect the civil case processes for being misused in the criminal case. And it is equally true, for example, that there is no legal duty to, uh, that, that say, for example, is enforced by hypothesis, you're assuming you can never compel him to come to the United States. Is that correct? Well... Other than by this, by using the civil proceeding to do so. If you can't compel him to stand trial in the criminal case, you haven't lost anything by proving and winning your civil case. You still get the same property, but you had to prove it instead of just using this sanction again. And you end up with the property, but no criminal judgment. And the reason you can't get a criminal judgment is you don't have authority to compel him to come from Switzerland to the United States. But he doesn't you still end up with exactly the same result. But he does not have the right to buy his way out of a criminal indictment either. And he not has buying no his right way out of it, he's just staying in Switzerland. No, the difference is, Justice Stevens, that we're entitled to the expectation that if we ever get our hands on him, we're going to put him in a U.S. jail where we think he belongs. And under your view of the facts, what would really happen is that we would be entitled as of now, to say $5 million only if we're ready to give up for good the hope of ever bringing someone to justice who spends a better well, life... you haven't given it up for good. The only thing you've given up is by putting in your proof, you've disclosed to him the witnesses who will testify against him in the criminal case. That's the only thing you have to give up. Right. And a that tactical is what I, advantage in the criminal case is, may or may not be all that important. It is not a tactical advantage. And I understand that it is possible to have different views on the value of criminal discovery, Justice Stevens. Um, no, he's not getting any discovery. I'm assuming that the trial judge in this case could say, you can have no discovery. But he's going to say to you, you can't get the property without proving you're entitled to it. 
and we did that. I'm not, I'm not saying that we are not required to make the prima facie showing that the statute requires us to make. All we oh, but have, you are. Aren't you saying you're entitled to the property even without the prima facie showing? No, we're not. We are not. And we're also saying... Well, if you've made the prima facie showing, why haven't you already disclosed your case then? Because we can make a prima facie showing by a verified complaint and an affidavit that shows probable cause, which under the forfeiture laws then shifts to him the burden of proving uh, a lawful source for the, for the funds. Uh, but, but it is not our view that we can come into the court without making a prima facie showing over the forfeit, under the forfeiture laws and get a judgment. All we're asking boils for... Down to your, it, it, it boils down to your fear that you would open the door to criminal discovery then. Well, that's, that's, your, that's your real fear here. Well, uh, yes. Now, you, you answered a question about that before, and I'm not sure that I understood your answer, just as Stevens alluded to, to the problem a second ago. Let's assume that he tries to get criminal discovery. Why isn't it perfectly open to the government in that event to say, don't give him the discovery? Because if you do, you will be providing discovery, in fact, in a criminal case to which he is not entitled, a case in which he will not appear, and for that reason, court, use your discretionary authority not to allow the discovery. Why can the government not be protected that way? Because, as I think I indicated earlier, that only pushes the problem one further step. He will then come in and put whatever evidence he thinks he has and, in effect, put us to the choice of disclosing our case to, to meet his evidence or uh, giving up on the forfeiture case. And as I was going so to... So it's not a discovery issue then, as you say. It just pushes it further. You want to put in a minimal case. You want him to know as little as possible consistent with your capacity to, uh, in effect, to, to, uh, to justify the forfeiture. No. It's not, we, it's not discovery. It's non-disclosure. We are happy... Well, y yes and no. We're happy for him to know as, as much as he wants so long as he knows it at a time when he no longer has the possibility of affecting no, no, we the realize, criminal jurisdiction. No, I realize that you're happy in that case, but what it boils down to, though, it seems to me, though, is that, as you say, it's not really that we can't protect, we, the government, cannot protect ourselves in discovery. We simply don't want to have to put on a comprehensive case because in doing so, we might provide some advantage to him for, for use in the later criminal case if, if it is later tried. I don't think that that's an entirely fair recharacterization of what I said. Help me out again. I think we're happy to make a prima facie showing, and we're happy to have a full-blown trial if we, if we are sure that we will not be endangering the, the criminal prosecution. Uh, it is not that we well, want to break by... You're endangering it in the sense that you would be disclosing more of your case than any rule of criminal discovery requires you to disclose. That's, that's what you mean by endanger, isn't it? Yes, but what I also mean is that the reason for the rules on criminal discovery is that what often happens when we have it is that we have obstruction of justice and witness intimidation and contrived testimony, mm -hmm. and that the judgment of the rules being as strict as they are, and they do reflect a public policy, is that the danger of that happening cannot effectively be controlled on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, we cannot take a wait-and-see attitude to see whether someone will attempt obstruction of justice because often the first indication that we will see is the contrived defense at trial followed immediately by an unwarranted acquittal. So this and, doesn't sound like it's a rule of the trial court's discretion? Well, it is in the sense, Justice Kennedy, that the district court retains discretion in every case 
to ascertain the extent of the dangers. I, I, but from all you have said, I presume that it would have been an abuse of discretion for the trial judge uh, not to entertain your motion. In an ordinary case? Here. In an ordinary case, that would probably be true, especially with charge of, with criminal charges of the, the, of the nature that is at issue here. If we have that rule, I, I suppose we're telling all other countries, uh, in at least countries with an open judicial system, uh, that if uh, there is a criminal charge filed against a uh, United States national living in the United States, that that, that person's property can be forfeited uh, if the person doesn't go to the foreign country to answer their charges. I. I'm not sure that I understand your question, Justice Kennedy. Well, you're, 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 you're asking us to adopt a rule that a foreign national must come here uh, to defend uh, against, uh, well, or a, a, a person with dual nationality must come here uh, to defend a criminal charge uh, or he's going to lose his property automatically. I, and I suppose it works the other way around. I think that it would be fair to say that we do say that the interest of the court in the civil case to guard against the misuse of its processes are strong enough to warrant a rule telling somebody that he should come meet criminal charges. Well, that, that's no problem if we're worried about foreign country, countries copying us and, and thereby uh, uh, prejudicing American citizens. Uh, uh, many foreign countries already allow criminal prosecutions in absentia. That's correct, Scalia. You would take the situation is already worse than that. Unfortunately, yes. You would take the same position even if you were not an American citizen, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah. In respect, uh, as as that justification goes, uh, that is true. I will point out, as we did in our brief, that he is in fact an American citizen, bo both by birth and by breeding. And then, uh, with and respect to that, don't you have authority, or couldn't an authority be exercised over him if Congress so chose? It could not be exercised over someone who's not a citizen. And there is the old Blackmer case. That's correct. There is, the, there is authority to call back our citizens to answer for charges here. But that kind of subpoena wasn't sent to him, was it? It was not sent to him to be a witness in the criminal case. And I think that the relevance of the Blackmer case here is that it shows that the United States as a sovereign has the right to have a rule that calls him back to this country to respond to court process. Uh, Mr. Estrada, t t tell us about fugitives from justice. Is it, uh, is it indeed uh, not an obligation of the citizen to present himself when he knows that there's an arrest warrant out for him? Well, I think it is a yes, but but I think we it's not a separate it crime. A civic duty. Uh, it's not a separate crime to be a fugitive from justice. It is Perhaps because there's no use in it. The guy's already a fugitive from one crime. Uh, well, right. The it's only like purpose of such a statute is to make him a fugitive no from two crimes. Well, yeah. I, mean, I guess you could have another statute uh, uh, making it a crime not to end your fugitive status. status. That would be three crimes that you can violate. <laughs> Well, well but I also, you'd, say, you'd say the government could, could take a uh, Congress, you pass a statute saying that anyone who's been indicted and who does not appear in due course without, all his property may be forfeited, period. Do I say that? Yeah. Uh, subject to the qualification that I think flows from some of these courts due process cases, that he be shown to have had notice and, and that it was possible, in fact, for him to... Uh, to come. I mean, it may be uh, that he is that we don't know where he is, and that we can, can't effectively give him notice. Nor, nor we may know whether, in fact, it is possible for him to comply. But subject, subject to, to that notice and ability to appear, yes. to prove that. Yes. yes. 
Is there any international norm on that? On, on what, Mr. Any international norm about whether any country anywhere in the world can say to all citizens of the world, once we file a criminal indictment against you, you have to travel here no matter how far, and if you don't, you lose all your property. I don't... Is that ever... Did you look that up at all? I don't... No, I don't... I don't think so. Uh, from our point of view, the, the uh, case really does involve the very narrow question of the power of the civil court to, to make sure that someone will not misuse it to gain an unfair tactical advantage. And it is, as the district court framed it, a limited rule, and as the Court of Appeals recognized, a rule that, that allows for the exercise of discretion in specific cases, uh, this not being one of them because Mr. Deegan waived any, any right to discretionary claims in the Court of Appeals. Uh, but it is not in any sense the, the type of extreme rule that Mr. Robbins has indicated we have. Would the same rule apply if a victim sued uh, in the District of Nevada for a harm caused by an absent defendant uh, based on a crime in the indictment, an assault, say? Based on a crime in the indictment, such that the same concern about the early disclosure of the government's case would apply, yes. And I, I take it under the long-arm statute there'd be jurisdiction so that that judgment would be enforceable personally against the defendant. Well, that's right. Uh, Automatic said, liability. Well, not well, if there's a prima facie case. It is not. It is. If it there's is, a prima facie case. If there is a prima facie case and he wishes to to dispute the case, it's a reasonable procedural rule to say we have such a strong interest in protecting the integrity of the related case uh, that we will that we will re require you to come face the uh, the music in that case uh, as a condition to maintaining uh, your civil action, which is no different from having filing fees or timing requirements on when you file your brief, all of which are predicated on the notion that these are simple rules with, with, with which a litigant can comply and that serve usefully the purpose of allowing the court in the civil case to conduct orderly, fair, and expeditious litigation. Uh, Mr. Estrada, what is the difference? Of the what does the government lose uh, when it has the funds in the court? What can't it do that it could do if the forfeiture had gone through as you're urging? Well, under the, under the view of the other side, we can't get the funds into the U.S. Treasury where we think they belong. But you can't put them in an interest-bearing account. And to wait what, Justice Ginsburg? I mean, there is no reasonable indication that he will ever come to this country to face the criminal charges. So what we're saying is that we're going to put the money in a bank where the government has no access no access to it, even though it has made a showing that would... Well, that probably would die before the government does. You'll get it eventually. Uh, <laughs> yes. At that point, you go ahead with the civil case. Uh, he's, he's beyond your criminal punishment anyway. But, but, but we are entitled to it now. Uh, and... and uh, my question is, is, that, is there something concrete that's different about saying we're entitled to it now and saying we've got the principal in the bank and we're getting interest on it, and so we're getting the, t the time value, we're getting the, we're not getting well, the principal, but we're getting the interest. I understand the point of your question, and I would say um, that I suppose that is a form of a compromise that has as much grounding in the court's inherent authority as the more easily manageable rule that we have here. Uh, and since we are not the, the uh, people at fault, and since by statute we're also entitled to the principle, it seems to me that as that as between the choice of two reasonable rules that accomplish a purpose, 
We're entitled to that one that gives us our statutory right. You're entitled to it if you can prove it, but you want to get it without proving it. We have proven uh, our entitlement to the money, and all we're looking to see is that in disputing our showing, the other party doesn't put us to the choice of giving up our statutory entitlement or giving up the very strong public interest in the integrity of a criminal prosecution. Thank you, Mr. Chief Thank you, Mr. Estrada. Mr. Robbins, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, this case is a, a very good illustration for why what this court called the blunderbuss of, dis of dismissal uh, is, uh, is, is inappropriate uh, as a way of solving the problem that the government is concerned about. Uh, if disentitlement is to be taken at the threshold in order to protect against the possibility that there may be discovery in the civil case that, that provides in, uh, a window into the criminal case, District courts can do that, and they do it every day of every week by applying Rule 26C, the Rules of Civil Procedure, and issue protective orders. This case, however, is different, because in this case, the federal prosecutor uh, said to the district judge in, a, in a, uh, uh, an argument made and reproduced in page 6A of the appendix to our brief that there was no need to stay the forfeiture proceedings one minute longer in deference to the criminal case precisely because there were, the cat was out of the bag in the criminal case. There was no need to protect against the disclosure of witnesses, no need to, to, protect, to protect against uh, uh, the disclosure of any evidence, and in response to the prosecutor's argument, the district court said, fine, you can go ahead and take all the depositions you want, Karen Deegan, the petitioner's wife, and in an order that's reflected uh, uh, in the minutes of the February 1, 1993 transcript. Uh, 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 in short, this district judge concluded that no protective order was appropriate precisely because there was nothing to protect against. Is Karen Deegan in the United States? She is not. She's living with her husband and their children in Switzerland. So a, a discovery order was entered against her, but not against uh, Brian? A discovery was or, or, uh, issued in her favor. Yep. But, not, but not in Mr. Deegan's favor. That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, uh, the point here is the, the wonderful irony about this argument is that it, it, it bears no, you know, no coherent relationship to the facts of this case. And precisely to avoid a problem that the prosecutor said was not presented, Mr. Deegan is to be disentitled, uh, dispositively sanctioned for conduct that the court has no jurisdiction, even in the action in which he is a putative fugitive, uh, to sanction him for. Let me also get rid of one other red herring. In, in that same exchange, I, what is the government doing? You said, I would point out, Your Honor, that Mr. Deegan is no longer a claimant in this case. He's merely a witness. Well, he'd already been disentitled. So what they were saying is, uh, you know, don't pay any attention to the need to get his evidence because you've already knocked him out of the box. And to the extent that Karen is relying on his unavailability as a reason to extend the, the summary judgment proceedings, uh, you shouldn't credit his, the need for his testimony. Um, uh, the other red herring I'd like to, uh, to deal with is the, uh, the argument that the government has already established its right to this money. Uh, what it has established is its right to the seizure of this money and this property through a prima facie showing, to be sure, but if I can be indulged one other Latinism, it's also completely ex parte. They went into court with a complaint and an affidavit that, uh, um, you know, to my mind, barely shows probable cause to believe any of the property was, in fact, uh, used in violation of 881A6 and A7, and now they have the money. And now, as the law permits, it's our burden to come into court and overcome that prima facie showing. It's our day in court, the first and only one we get. Mr. Robinson, what they did, what they showed, is comparable to what 
a plaintiff would have to show, in the case of an ordinary civil default judgment, right, make an ex parte showing of the entitlement to money damages. Uh, well, that, that's, that's, that's correct. They've, they've gone in and shown that they have at least that much of a claim. But the law then permits Mr. Deegan to come in and overcome it. Uh, and, you know, if his unavailability prejudices his, his capacity to make that showing, then he's so much the worse for it. We're not asking that he be treated any better. We're asking that he be given the rights and opportunities that the law prescribes. Uh, and he's being, uh, uh, you know, he's been foreclosed those opportunities by virtue of conduct that is not against the law, period. Um, and and I, it seems to me that courts can't do it. Uh, um, and um, we Not against have, the law, you mean not, not criminal? It is not criminal. I, mean, it may, I, I question whether it's not against the law. To well, Your Honor reverted to whether there isn't some other law inherent in the duty of citizenship. Um, it, it may be, although Blackmer does not deal with that issue, I would respectfully suggest, but rather a quite different issue. Thank you, Mr. Robbins. The case is submitted.